You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I will be joining Abraham as Shane today. And we are going to teach you something valuable, the most valuable of things, which is teach you to do anything. We're going to turn you from the student to the teacher. That's pretty much what we're trying to do. We're trying to give you the tools so that you can teach anybody to do anything ever. And to be an even better student because you can learn to do anything too. Yeah, it's funny how that works, how that's all intertwined. You can teach yourself. (laughs) Except for skateboarding. I cannot learn how to skateboard. That's right. (laughs) Give a man a skateboard and he'll fall down. Teach a man to skateboard and he'll do a 900. (laughs) <laughs> and he'll do it on hundred <laughs> and also fall down. <laughs> and then fall down a few times before that happens. I just realized that saying is a little bit sexist, or maybe a lot of it. Oh yeah. Teach a person. Yeah, there you go. Give a person a skateboard, they'll fall down. Teach a person a skateboard, they'll do a nine hundred. That's right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so clearly we're off the rails already. Let's start with a quick story. Have you ever met Priscilla Sitiani? Not that I am aware of. Sitiani, maybe? Anyway. I would be surprised if you had. She grew up in Kenya. I've never been there, and I don't think she ever made it to the United States, so it would be tough. But she, in Kenya, she never received formal education, so she didn't know how to read, didn't know how to write, all the basic academic things you'd expect from some kind of education. And at 90 years old, she decided to go to elementary school to learn these things. Oh. And so she was actually in the same class as her great great grandkids. That's probably really sweet, actually. Yeah. How cool is that? It's great. Yeah. And by going to these classes, she learned to read and write so that she could, and specifically her motivation was she wanted to be able to record her story and pass it down through generations, sort of tell the story of her life and the things that were important to her and to leave some kind of mark, you know, that leave her history, which. You know, however many people it's going to reach, it's it's a cool endeavor. It's something that's anybody striving for anything that me- that's meaningful for them in the time that they have on this planet, then uh, cool. Yeah, there's a benefit to that. Like that's improving her quality of life, you know, just by being able to learn something new and do something impactful for her. Right. Now, what I think is particularly interesting and unique about Priscilla is that many people just sort of give up once they reach adulthood. I think we can both definitely speak to this. Yes, 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 yes. As, at 34, I have given up on many things. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of people are apathetic, if not openly hostile, toward the idea of learning new things or changing their behavior in any way. I think that is grossly apparent in our current <laughs> state of yeah. the world right now. <laughs> I was just thinking the whole the whole mask thing going on right now with people refusing to wear masks and saying ironic things that they don't maybe know are ironic when they complain about wearing masks yeah is evidence of this yeah i think my favorite thing though about the whole mask thing is that everybody keeps calling it mask debate yes (laughs) and just like (laughs) that you know people say it so fast that they don't really clearly define it's like a mask discussion maybe right stop calling it a mask debate but also keep calling it mass debate that's hilarious yeah it is amusing (laughs) <laughs> on some level somebody's like some producer heard that and was like no it's okay we're just going to keep calling it that yeah oh 100 <laughs> percent. because this is nothing if not a mask debate <laughs> oh the world we look for the silver lining <laughs> it's out there <laughs> it's the little things folks it's the little things anyway as i was saying adults often don't want to learn new things however there are often these people that you'll know even into adulthood into senior and their golden years that they're lifelong students. They're always seeking to learn new things. Are you a refuse to learn person or are you uh, adventurous? Are you somewhere in the middle? I definitely lean towards being more adventurous and trying to learn new things, except that sometimes I try to learn things that aren't useful, like, or useful to like my daily life. So what will happen is I'll learn like kind of this weird thing where like one time I tried to learn how to can things. That's useful. And spent like I like, like six months learning how to make jams. So like I have this in my, in my repertoire. And I've, I haven't done it since. It's been a couple of years. So I learned how to make like slow gin. So like I have like this just weird set of skills that I'm like, I could do that. And then I go do it. So, but no, I think I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I think I'm a lifelong student. I think if I wasn't, I probably wouldn't read as much as I do or, you know, read as much research as I do. Like I spend a lot of time trying to learn new things. Awesome. 
I was thinking when you were saying you le- learn useless things that you're going to say you were trying to pick up TikTok, but <laughs> <laughs> I think the time for TikTok is over at this point. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. That's funny. I don't know. I don't think it's useless. I, I think it's all it's all has its place. Or yeah, otherwise it wouldn't exist. Like people yeah. get some use out of it. Otherwise it would be there. So. I think that I'm definitely on the, I love to learn new things. I'm constantly seeking ways to, I guess, try and change my behavior, develop new habits, eliminate old bad habits. I really like challenging myself to figure out where I've gotten stuck in a rut and see if there's a, if I should move on because I'm no longer being productive in something that I'm doing. And I, I know that there are some things that I do that I, I kind of just do now, but that doesn't mean that they won't change. I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast before, but years ago, I decided I was going to learn how to brush my teeth with my left hand. (laughs) That's the only way I brush my teeth now. Hmm. So maybe it's time to switch back. But it was kind of just like out of the blue. I was like, you know what? I feel like I feel like my left hand needs to be more useful than it currently is. And so I'm (laughs) going to pick up a skill that requires left hand use. That's something I'm definitely going to do every day. I just realized that that sounds like it could be a euphemism for something. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but spoiler alert <laughs> yes speaking of which we'll be talking about euphemisms at another time in the future but for today we'll continue talking about learning new things so we're learning we're not learning we're teaching kind of we're teaching and learning we are going to be talking about how to learn to do anything and how to teach someone to learn to do anything so you get to be both the teacher and the student yeah and i think you'll be shocked to learn that it is quite simple. It is. It's not super complex. I think maybe the complexity comes with the skill that you're attempting to learn. But for the most part, learning how to do something or teaching how to do something, very, very simple processes. And was you just within reason, not going to be able to teach you how to hold your breath underwater for 12 hours because you can't. But (laughs) unless you're David Blaine. Unless you're David Blaine. There's always an exception to every rule. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go over the process a little bit and, and we'll talk about those different steps to teaching and what it means to be a good teacher and also, or I'm sorry, not maybe good, maybe effective teacher. To there be an go. effective teacher and an effective learner when you are trying to learn a new skill or when you're trying to teach it to somebody else. All right. So let's give a brief overview of what we're going to talk about. And here's really the big secret about how to learn to do anything at all. Ready? I'm ready. Okay practice all right we did it episode that's over. it that's the whole episode so Bye, everyone. Uh, time for recommendations yep just kidding <laughs> that's a huge huge part of it we'll get to that in a little bit but the reason that i mentioned this is not only how to learn to do anything but also how to teach anything is because they're inherently linked those ideas, those concepts, the, the strategies are linked together because if you're learning something, then you're learning it from somewhere, which might mean that you're watching a video or you're reading a book or you're just going trial and error. Either way, there's some kind of input. And so if you structure that input, that's a structuring input for developing a new skill is the same thing as teaching. And then the actual developing of that skill is the learning. So there are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And so what we're going to do now is talk a little bit about a tried and true model for teaching that works, some key ingredients for practice and how much and how often you should practice. Because you'll hear a lot of different theories about the 10,000 hours. You'll hear about all these different things. And we're going to kind of break this down in a little bit about how much, how often, what works, and, and, and maybe debunk a few things in, in the meantime. Always. That's our middle name anymore. <laughs> Why we debunk what we debunk. <laughs> That's right. May as well just change it. Just lean into it. <laughs> That's we're on the way. Okay. So as we mentioned, we will begin with a discussion on the sort of tried and true method for teaching. And there is a particular person that I think fits really nicely inside of this discussion. And her name is Anita Archer. And she's developed a series of curriculum and books. Have you heard that name before? No, but I was thinking of like military personnel okay. calling and asking for Anita Archer and just like yelling to the camp like, hey, Anita Archer. Anyone, I need an archer. Kind of like just a bad Simpsons prank call. Yeah, I was going to say that does sound like a Simpsons gag. <laughs> so, <laughs> but Anita, as far as I know, her real name, Anita Archer, and her general overview that she gives, and this is, this is accurate. This is the tried and true method. And I'm sure that other people have said this too, and we're just giving credit to her and whatever. She talked about this in a really succinct, clear, and understandable way and did a great job and as a communicator getting this technology out to the world. But one of the elements that she described is focusing on critical components of skills first. 
So what are the specific elements, the specific small fine-grained skills that are necessary for you to be able to progress? And I'll give you an example of, let's say you are learning to type, like you want to be fluent at typing. Well, one of the critical skills is getting your fingers on the keyboard in the right way that you can consistently use the keys on the keyboard. So like you, if you can't get your fingers on the keys in a way that allows you to use them systematically and quickly, then you're never going to be able to progress through the subsequent steps of that. It's the whole walk before you run sort of thing. And when you start kind of looking at skills, this is something that's going to be really important as we go forward, is that that basic skill of being able to get your fingers on the keys is not even the first skill that you would need to even get there. You'd have to be able to identify what a keyboard is or even identify letters on a keyboard to be able to start typing, right? So like Good point. as you start looking at these skills and looking at different skills, there are these other pivotal skills, these things that you need to learn before you even get to these stages, right? Like I think of baseball all the time. You think of the way that like Little League Baseball is structured. So it starts with T-ball. And so you learn basics, you learn the basic mechanics on how to throw a ball, what the positions are, how to swing a bat, and it starts with a T. And then you move into pitching machine where the ball is consistently thrown in the same space every single time the ball is pitched and then you move to minor leagues which is like now you've got a ball that's pitched and it's a little bit more variable but you've learned the mechanics to be able to hit a moving pitch or a curveball or anything so it's it's one of those things where as you start looking at teaching and you start looking at learning there's always a place to start before you move into these more complex skills yeah always starting with those easier skills before moving on to harder skills like you don't you don't jump into the hardest thing and expect to pick up the easier components along the way people don't go into dental school and perform a root canal on a real patient on day one. You know, if they are, don't go to that person as your dentist. <laughs> it might be an effective strategy for helping someone to overcome a fear, but not necessarily, not at all, actually for learning a new skill. And this is actually kind of a myth, if you will, that has existed in education for such a long time is this idea that if I just teach you the big applied skill, you'll figure out all the components that go into that. And that's not an effective way to do it. You start at the components and then you test on the applied skill. And if you look at any place else where that is practical, then you'll see that people have figured this out. And as you mentioned, sports is a really good example. And then learning an instrument is a really good example. Like if you're learning guitar, I'm not going to sit down and have you learn like, I don't know what's a good guitar. Let's say Metallica. I don't know if they're good at guitar, but you're not going to learn master of puppets by Metallica. You're probably going to learn smoke on the water. There you go. <laughs> like you're going to learn the two power chords that you need to, to generally put together something that resembles a song. And you're going to learn basic like scales probably when you're learning an instrument for the first time. And those are, those are the components and everybody has sort of figured this out except for some reason in education and things related to education. But that's the, the point here is that you start with those easier skills. Yeah, and that goes back to the idea of prerequisites first. Like, what do you need to do the skill? What is the most critical component of that skill that you need to be able to move forward? And it's really important to kind of look at it too from the perspective of being able to work on those similar skills separately, being able to work on like, what are those prerequisite skills for those similar skills, but working on them individually, kind of like Abraham just mentioned. Like, for example, I'm thinking about when I was in grad school and I was working on learning how to do psychological assessment. So as you're learning these, they teach you, these critical skills, which are how to read the manual for the assessment, how to complete this particular assessment. So for example, I had to learn how to do the whisk. And so you sit down, you learn how to do the whisk and the waist. They're two separate assessments, but you learn how to do them, but you learn the individual components of those assessments before you implement them. And so I can go out and I can run a whisk. I can go out and run a waist. I couldn't run another IQ test because I wasn't trained on another IQ test. I would have to learn those individual components on those IQ tests or those personality tests before I ever implemented them. So you have to learn how to identify the test, read the manuals, score it. You have to observe. So there's a lot of different things that go into it. So you have to be able to work on those singular things to avoid any sort of confusion. If I learn like, okay, I can go do IQ tests and pick up a, a Woodcock Johnson, then I'm not going to be able to actually implement that. Kind of sounded like you had baby speak there for a second when you said you could want to waste. <laughs> I could want to waste. <laughs> Sorry, those are really good examples, actually, and I think very relatable. So that was great. I just, when you said I can go out and run a waste, and I was like, haha, you can want to waste. <laughs> I could want a waste. That's a baby marathon. I can want to waste. Yeah, yeah it's, just, it's just to the playground. There. <laughs> anyway, that was, a, that was a really good example. And so going back to the system, so we've been talking about this idea of these prerequisites 
and thinking about this in terms of components relative to the more aggregated larger skill and so the easier stuff before working on the hard stuff and the next section of this discussion in terms of the sort of tried and true method is based on sort of how to teach this i mean i guess all of this has been but the next thing to think about that's relevant to learning is is teaching that and this is the tell show do this goes by many names behavior skills training as well as other things but essentially the structure of this is tell show do or another way to do, to say it this is the way that's talked about by some other people in academia is i do we do you do and the important part that often gets missed in these is that there's feedback and usually some kind of reward for being successful or correction for making a mistake and so the whole system is tell someone how to do it show them how to do it have them do it and then provide feedback on their performance both praise and corrective where necessary thinking about that another way is i will do it so you demonstrate it we will do it so you'll do it together with the person and then you will do it independently and then when the person does it independently then they get feedback and praise or correction based on the performance no matter how you set it up it's the exact same sort of idea and then also too another thing to include in that is that there is now do it again <laughs> i think that yes. gets missed too so we Good talked about point. that practice piece which is like tell me show me do it here's how to do it better let's do it again What's great about this is you'll see this, this behavioral skills training or this type of teaching model is used on so many different skills. You'll see so much research on things like being able to teach football players to tackle safely without ending up with an injury, helping kids through dental procedures, teaching fire safety skills. I mean, those are just a couple examples of what this type of teaching is used for. Yeah. And actually, let's quickly go back and forth the list because I just did a basic search and this is all on the peer reviewed literature of using behavior skills training. These all come from articles that I found to really look into this and back this up. Yeah. So another one was improve shot performance in hockey, teach children how to read and teach social skills to homeless children and children with an autism diagnosis. That's actually really interesting. I would love to read that one about teaching social skills to homeless children. Yeah, I can link it in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. Some other ones were stopping children from playing unsafely with guns, which actually got national attention. And, and the the researcher that was doing that, Dr. Ray Miltenberger, was on, I want to say, like CNN or ABC or something. He was on some news channel discussing this particular, this very specific research that he did. Cool. Improving college interview skills, teaching children to recognize and avoid threats of abduction. So more safety skills training, which is cool. There's avoiding head injuries during sports, similar to the tackling, but this one's a little, a little more general. Training teachers how to obtain better engagement with students in a preschool classroom. And then there were just hundreds more. I just sort of picked ones that really grabbed my attention from the headlines. And these have just been consistently, continuously, and repeatedly demonstrated in peer-reviewed literature that this model of teaching is very, very effective. I mean, it is one of the most solid bases we have in understanding how to effectively pick up a new skill. Right. I mean, this has been replicated so many times that it's like, it's shocking that it's not more widespread or more people don't know about this. I mean, it's bizarre to me that it's this thing that's like, it's in our research, it's this gem, and you find it literally in all these different areas and everybody's like, I don't know how to teach anything. There's literally this, this procedure. I can give you this procedure. Use this, please. So on that, that's a great segue. Let's actually describe this procedure in detail. And you can think about it as DDPP, which I know sounds <laughs> kind of inappropriate, but DDPP. So describe, demonstrate, practice, praise. Describe how to do the skill, demonstrate how to do the skill, practice as the learner, and then praise and feedback or correction. So the feedback sort of reward part of that. So let's go into each one of those in detail, okay? So the first specific item that we're going to talk about here is this idea of describing or telling. And that's going to include the performance that is necessary, basically what we are looking for out of the skill. What's the behavior, the performance that we're looking for? And what's the adequate performance that we're looking for? So in this step, we're going to describe each step of the skill in order, succinctly, clearly, try to keep it short. If it's a longer description or you're finding that you're describing something in a lot of different steps within that particular setup, you might want to break that up a little bit more. It might be too complex. Right. Sometimes you'll see that with recipes. Like you might pick up a recipe and be like, I don't know how I got here. That's because that recipe is not designed well for you to be able to implement it. Yeah. It's set up for someone who's maybe like at an expert level level already. 
Right. And sometimes it's useful to include what not to do, but not as a general rule. And so this is mostly for safety things like, oh, okay, when you pick up a gun, don't squeeze the trigger. You know, like <laughs> that that's maybe not the first thing you do. That's probably what you would include in that particular described situation. But for the most part, you don't really need it. You just want to describe the adequate performance, the desired performance, what we're looking for in that skill that you're teaching. As you're mentioning that, that made me think of if you were teaching someone to shave for the first time. I'm not necessarily going to say like, okay, so you pick up the razor, don't shave your eyeball, just put it on your face. Like there's a million things that you don't want to have happen. <laughs> right. It's useful to describe what not to do, as you mentioned, when it's a safety thing and when it's like there's one specific thing not to do. Otherwise, like most of the things you are going to do are probably things that I, I'm going to have to describe each step of or it doesn't matter. Right. Okay. So the next step here is demonstrate. So again, we're talking about DDPP, describe, demonstrate, practice, praise, and demonstrate. Show the learner or learners what the performance looks like. And you do so in a very deliberate and accurate manner. It does not usually need additional explanation. You have already described it and now you're modeling what it looks like. And this model could include a slow demonstration doesn't have to, but it should always include a competent performance at the expected pace. So even if you do it slow, then do it at the pace at which it should be. Okay. And then that way you have a very clear demonstration of what it looks like, both when you break it down into each individual step, which again might require doing each individual step independently. For some things, there's just like two or three things to do. And you're like, here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. Put them all together. It looks like this. And that that's the demonstrate sort of model. I remember seeing a lot of this when I was growing up playing baseball, but just if I'm teaching somebody to swing a bat, I'm probably not going to put them in a situation or I'm not going to demonstrate it just yet with a live pitcher during a real game. If I'm practicing, I'm probably going to show all the mechanics because if you look at somebody swinging a baseball bat, it's very complex. It requires specific grip. It requires you to hold your, your hands a certain way. It requires you to step, turn your hips, bring the bat through the strike zone, turn your back foot. I mean, there's all these different behaviors that go into it, right? So swinging a baseball bat is far more complex than people realize. And so what I would probably do if I was demonstrating this was I'd probably show in slow motion each small component, each step in that swing. And then I would demonstrate it in an expected pace without a live pitcher. I wouldn't even, I would still be role playing. Could you demonstrate how to not get coronavirus while playing baseball? Yeah, I could do that right now. All you got to do is everybody should be wearing masks. I don't know why they're not. There's so many people on the field. It's it's bizarre. I mean, to be fair on a baseball diamond, everybody is spread out. So you really only have groups of two people at a time, like when somebody's on base. Yeah. Maybe three when you have the umpire behind the plate and the catcher and the batter. But that's about it. But still, they could do better. Come on, guys. I was mostly just thinking about how once baseball started up, there was immediately cases of coronavirus among the players. Oh, Yeah. Have you seen any of the games recently where they have like, they don't have any crowds, but they have cardboard cutouts behind the plate? I saw some images. I didn't actually watch the game. It's fantastic. Well, baseball is boring for some people. I totally get that. Yeah. I'm <laughs> one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people, it's it's an American pastime. I don't know. I, I love baseball. I grew up with it though. So I'm like, that's great. Anyway, we digress. So the next thing is practicing, right? So we look at the skill that we've told, we've demonstrated, now we're gonna practice it. And the learner is gonna now copy the model for themselves, demonstrate the performance of the skill. And they could do it at that slow pace, but you want to get them to that pace that that's the expected pace or whatever that behavior is supposed to look like at that terminal stage. You know, what does that behavior look like at the end? And you wanna to try to have them practice it at that level. And within that, you might find this is going to probably be the space that takes the longest, the practice component, because this is where it's going to go into the next parts where we talk about praise and feedback and all that. But practice is really you want to have that learner demonstrate the skill as you've described it, as you've modeled it. And so once there is practice, then we get to the final step, which you're providing recognition for what is what they've done correctly, as well as feedback and correction on what might be an error. And so we always want to recognize things that were done well so that we don't miss that. Because one mistake that I think often gets made when teaching or learning a new skill is failing to acknowledge what was done correctly. And then you have your learners like, okay, well, they didn't say anything about this. So maybe I like didn't do that right or something. And you just, you never know what's, what is going on sort of in their thought process if you provide zero feedback whatsoever on something that they've done. So acknowledge what was done correctly and then provide feedback on their performance in terms of any other additional correction. And I always like to give the re recommendation that usually when you're giving feedback, there's kind of a lot to 
potentially unpack in that. And so I always recommend ending your feedback on the thing you want them to remember most. So like, what do I want you to walk away from this interaction? If it's like you really needed to fix this because there was a huge error going on, then leave them with the correction versus if there was like, there was a small little mistake, but really you wanted to acknowledge what they did super well that time, then I would end that feedback with the acknowledgement of what went well. And that's actually not something I got out of the research. That's just something I found for myself that I, I try to leave. I try and end that feedback on whatever I want them to remember the most. And so again, you're acknowledging anything that went well, if anything, explaining what didn't work and why it didn't work and how to fix it. If that is applicable to that situation. And part of that too is maybe going back to, you might find yourself bouncing between praise and practice multiple times, like where you're providing feedback, you're providing that correction, you're even modeling the correct response or the correct behavior that you want to see, the correct skill, and then having that person practice maybe that singular component, right? So, you know, I'm thinking of, again, going back to the baseball swing, I would work with people who wouldn't turn their hips. Like, so they would swing the bat, but they wouldn't turn their hips. They would just swing with their arms. And so we would practice like just having them turn their hips when they would step and then including those smaller steps. And that's where you kind of like learn as you're working with a learner. Maybe I need to break up the skill a little bit more. Maybe I describe it in a little bit more detail. Maybe there are extra steps that this person doesn't have. And you learn that through that practice and that feedback interaction, that back and forth within that. Yeah. Just as you said, you'll probably spend the most time on that practice and feedback portion. And then if you need to supplement by going through and adding in the describe and demonstrate portions as well. Like that's just this is all part of the process is you're going to be sensitive. You're, it's going to be dynamic. There's going to be you're going to be adding and changing things as it goes. But that's the overall structure of learning or teaching a new skill is describe, demonstrate, practice and praise slash feedback and repeat as necessary. Yep. Until the terminal skill is met in that session and then have them practice it more. Yeah. Which is to say once they've demonstrated whatever the criteria is to be considered mastered. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that is all section one. This is, this is the method for teaching. So here are some key ingredients for practicing and learning. Some things to keep in mind that are going to be particularly helpful. Cool? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Real quick, going to knock out a some resource that I found that seemed to come from cognitive psychology. I didn't dig too hard into this literature, so I just sort of took what I found from various blogs and other sort of articles published online and whatnot. But essentially, they broke down ingredients for practice as ability, prior knowledge, motivation, and deliberate practice. And so ability is essentially what is already easy for you as one of the key ingredients. I guess where you might be able to use this is thinking about start what at the level that you're at rather than way too easy or way too hard. I, I'm not sure how else to interpret that because it doesn't really read as advice to me. I would say it's probably ability to is like, that's just putting whatever you're working on into, I guess, maybe reality, which is like, you know, I'm not going to go work in a five-star restaurant. I need to learn how to poach an egg. Yeah. But also like, I have the language to be able, like I can read, I can write, I can follow recipes. I can, so that maybe ability talks about like maybe a skills inventory, like maybe the person has to start with like what their current skills are to be able to do anything. Yeah. My cooking skills are barely acceptable for Arby's. Yeah. Bird. <laughs> Hi the next one they give is prior knowledge, which is to say, if you already know something about it, it will be easier to learn. If you already know how to do it, I'm not sure that you're really going to be in a position of trying to learn it, but maybe they're just sort of building off of this idea that you're starting at the level at which you already have some amount of expertise or fluency. I'm not sure how helpful that is, but that's one of the other ones. I guess maybe some prior knowledge would help you maybe, I don't know, have to learn less about a thing. So if I have a prior knowledge of psychology in general, it's probably easier for me to learn about abnormal psychology, I guess. Maybe that's the thing that I would take from that. So the other thing they listed was motivation, whether or not we value a skill or an outcome, whether we have confidence in ourselves, that we are in a good mood when we're trying to learn. I think that's interesting because I think of, you know, for some people, if I'm learning how to maybe do a new workout, I'm probably not the most stoked about working out. I'm not a big fan of working out if I don't have to, but I still have to learn it. So maybe it's the value component. And so with this motivation piece is important for learning a skill, but I just think of like, being in a good mood. I could be in a bad mood and still learn something, I think. That's a fair point. I also agree with. 
I think that from a teacher perspective, if you're a really good teacher, you'll figure out a way to build motivation into the lesson. I don't think it's useful to assume that like, oh, a kid will just like eventually they'll feel motivated to like want to learn trigonometry or something. They won't as a side note. <laughs> right. You create that motivation. They'll create some level of excitement and that that's, a, you know, a good teacher will do that and build that in. I think as the learner, as you mentioned, there is a component of this that is find what the uh, the ultimate value is for you. You know, why are you trying to take this on? And having that be part of your motivation. And I think we'll get to this later, but being able to have some way of measuring that you're improving can be a way to motivate yourself. So does that. Yeah, for sure. The last section here is deliberate practice is better than mindless practice. That is true to a point. I think it depends on the skill because sometimes you want to build a skill that becomes so fluent that you don't think about it anymore. I often give the example of driving a car with manual transmission. I don't think that you want, I mean, to, you do want to deliberate to do deliberate practice. Once you're at the point where you're actually driving, it should be very automatic. You are not thinking about going through each individual motion of the gears, or you're probably going to not be focusing on the road and instead focusing on something else. And there are some skills that are just, they're really, really repetitive. And it's a lot more about just getting the reps in than it is about really thinking carefully. But I think generally that's good advice. Yeah. And I think that's where the learning is doing kind of component comes in, right? So like a lot of learning is part of our experience and being able to contact rewards for those new skills that we're learning. And so what you're trying to do when you're learning something new is build a new habit, build something that is that you do become fluent in something that is kind of like, I guess the term second nature, right? So like you start thinking of this as like, I can't remember learning how to tie my shoes, but I know how to tie my shoes. Like I learned that it stayed with me. It stuck with me. I don't, I remember learning how to ride a bike, but when I get on a bike, I don't think about it anymore. So, you know, you are building these new habits, but there's always like another level. There's always a level up for that behavior too, or for that, that skill that you're learning, right? Like I know how to ride a bike as an amateur. I could not ride a bike on a mountain. I would die. It can't be overstated how important it is. The concepts that learning is doing especially thinking about didactic instruction when you tend to have someone just sort of talking at you, you can glean some amount of information from that, but to really learn something, you are doing it in some way. That's an important piece. So another thing to think about here when we're talking about key ingredients for practice is going back to the behavior skills training model that we described, which was the tell, show, do, or the describe, demonstrate, practice, praise, which is find an expert or at least a competent performer. It can be on a video. It can be an actual person, whatever. You are going to find someone who can execute this performance masterfully. Ask them to demonstrate and explain the skill. Not in that order. Explain it, then demonstrate it. <laughs> and then ask them to observe your attempt at that skill and provide feedback to you. So essentially, like if you're trying to learn something new, then one thing you can do is try to recruit a teacher and they might not know how to teach. But you can just sort of walk them through and say, all right, describe to me how this is done. Now show me how it's done. Let me try it. And you tell me how I did. And you sort of just guide their hand through teaching you because they do have content expertise. They just might not be great at delivering that in a way that allows you to learn necessarily. Right. And so in that space, even without having somebody who can do that, you can do self-modeling or you can do, you can, you can watch tutorial videos. I mean, people do it all the time. I, I, I met somebody not too long ago who learned how to like rebuild their car just from YouTube videos. Yeah. And they don't have a mentor. They don't have somebody who's providing them feedback where they're contacting feedback or they're contacting those rewards are from the result of that response. Right. So, right. They have put something together, they put an engine together, and the reward is what? That it works. Right. And if it doesn't work, then they have to problem solve. And so when you start looking at these these things, when when you look at how to do it and you look at tutorial videos, you can kind of you can learn something from them, but part of it is still doing the practice. Part of it is still contacting the rewards for those certain behaviors that you engage in. And also, again, practice, practice, practice outcomes for that. Another thing, too, you could look at something like self-modeling, where it's like you can actually videotape yourself doing something. You see this a lot in sports, where somebody will videotape themselves completing a skill, like I go back to swinging a baseball bat. You videotape yourself swinging a baseball bat, and if that swing doesn't look the way you want it to, then that's when you start giving yourself feedback. You can correct those behaviors and practice that a little bit. And there is actually, again, a huge chunk of research that's been done on video modeling and using that to critique and improve performance. So 
definitely well backed by science. Yes. All right. Now, as far as you mentioned, when you're learning a new skill, a way of thinking about this is this is effectively building a new habit. And going back to the whole idea of habit reversal, the opposite of habit reversal is acquiring a habit. And it goes through the exact same steps, just in the opposite direction. So normally in habit reversal, you're trying to identify what is the the cue, signal, or antecedent event that immediately precedes that particular habit. And then you want to either change that or notice it so that you can change your, your reaction to it. And this one, you want to identify a cue or signal that indicates when you want to start that new chain of actions that you'll take, that new habit that you want to pick up. And then you will do that thing, whatever that new skills you're learning, 100% of the times that you see that cue. So pick something that's going to be unique and singular and happens with respect to when you want to do something. Let's say you're you're really bad about putting on the seatbelt when you get on in the car. A very simple cue for this is you have closed the door to the car. As soon as the door closed, seatbelt comes on. Close the door, seatbelt comes on. Close the door, seatbelt comes on. That cue will only ever be associated with that particular action. And if you practice when that cue happens, do that action, then it'll become just sort of ingrained in that pattern and you'll just do it thoughtlessly for the most part. And then also you will never do that action when you do not see that cue. So you're walking around the store, you don't just put on a seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, that'd be very strange if you did. It would be strange. And there can be multiple cues too. There can be a lot of different things that function as signals to indicate this is when you do that particular thing. It just kind of depends. Like you might want to do that thing in a lot of different ways. And actually picking up social skills is a really good example of this where there are lots of different types of social cues that you might have in terms of how you engage with someone when you make eye contact and when you don't. Like when someone is doing something like eating their food and they're like across a restaurant and you don't know that person, you don't just lock eyes and make eye contact with them. <laughs> I did that one time and I never, I, I will never forget. I was at a restaurant and I actually locked eyes with somebody while I was eating a French fry and I can't forget it. That happened two years ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's not a good example. I mean, there's a, no, it's a good was, example. That was just that. <laughs> I mean, I still eat French fries and that doesn't happen every time I eat French fries, but I still think about that, that specific thing. Maybe that's just anxiety. I don't know. Next time I'm eating French fries, I'm going to look around for Shane. See if he's watching me. <laughs> when I eat French fries, I'm going to look for somebody. I'm going to make eye contact with you. I'll, I'll bring French fries to the podcast and do that while we're chatting. I'm Great. sure P our friends with <laughs> misophonia would love that. Yeah, so that would make great podcasting material. <laughs> anyway, point being that if you were teaching a skill, just as an example, like social skills, there are appropriate times to make eye contact, and there are a lot of different cues for those times, and there are times that it wouldn't be the case. And so just thinking about what those specific signals are and how to pick something like that up. And then an important step here that I do not want to miss is that when you are building a new habit, so you have that cue. You are going to practice whenever that cue is present, not when that cue is absent. There can be multiple cues, but the one of the key things here is that you have a way of tracking or monitoring your performance so that you know when it has happened and when it has happened correctly. And so having some way of identifying that you're improving is a really helpful and important step. Yeah. If you are not catching errors when you're learning something, then you're going to build in bad components to this behavior, this skill that you're learning, right? And so what will end up happening is you'll learn a bad habit. And then it's really one of those things where you have to almost like undo that learning and create a whole new history of learning just to kind of fix that error that's been linked into that series of behaviors in that skill. Yeah, completely agree. I like how you tie that all together. <laughs> okay. So there is this podcast that I listen to. The guy's name is Jim Quick. For every nine things that he gets wrong, he gets one of them right. And <laughs> One of the things that he gets really right, he loves to speak in sort of catchphrases, which is fine. Like, I think it, it can help you remember it, but he recommends often to teach someone else. So if you are learning a new skill, even when you're learning it, you don't, don't even have to have mastered it yet. If you're teaching someone else how to do it, he says, when you teach it, you learn it twice, both when you are teaching it to them and the fact that you're doing it again. It is a good key ingredient to teach someone else a skill that you're learning because it is just more learning for you to do it that way. Learning is doing. I, as a, an instructor in our field, I started teaching experimental design courses and I understand it so much better now that I'm teaching it than I ever did as a student. And part of that is you're having to revisit the material. You're having to explain it to a student. You're having, I mean, even as we go through the podcast, I'm sure that you've probably had this experience too, where we pick up a topic and we understand it a little bit better because we're trying to explain it 
from technical terminology into something a little bit more consumable. Absolutely. And then as soon as we're done recording, I've forgotten everything that I said. 100%. <laughs> Just kidding. I can't remember anything about prions. I don't remember anything about teaching or learning anything. Just kidding. So I actually think this is really great advice. I think this is something to, to look at. Is like If you're learning a skill, try to teach it to somebody because you'll have to be able to understand it to be able to teach it. Some other tips and tricks too that are, are worth looking at as far as learning a new skill practicing component steps. So maybe you're not learning the entire skill altogether. Maybe you have to learn smaller skills within that. Maybe there's a stage one, stage two, stage three of learning this skill. For example, if you want to learn to build a car, you probably have to learn how to identify parts of the car. You probably have to learn how to work on different parts of the car and how those different systems interact, right? So there's a cooling system. There is a, a fuel system. There are all these different parts of the car that interact with one another. So you're not going to learn how to build an engine from the beginning, what you might learn is learning these different systems and how all these different systems interact. Another one that is just a component here is that it is okay to make errors as long as it's safe to do so. But you need to know that you made a mistake. So you have to have some knowledge of what the correct response looks like and knowing when you made a mistake and also then how to fix it. So don't practice errors. You can make errors and use those as an opportunity to learn to do it better, but don't practice errors, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because the more you practice mistakes, the more they become ingrained as part of that skill, and they become harder and harder to get rid of as you're trying to learn. And I see this, actually going back to this typing example, I see this quite a bit with people who are typing, who picked up some bad habits, where they will type it incorrectly and have to fix it for that word every time they type it. And it just, it turned that one word into a three-step process where it's type it wrong, fix it, type it right. And it's like, that's a, a horribly inefficient way to develop that. So again, it's okay to make errors, just be able to know that you made that mistake and don't practice mistakes. I still type the wrong every single time I type it or type it. Do you? Yep. It's always H-T-E. <laughs> I type too fast. And I think the other side of that too is practice correctly as much as possible. So so you might feel pretty comfortable with the skill, but maybe not entirely fluent, or maybe it's not supernatural yet to you. Like maybe it hasn't come it's it's supernatural. Very ghostly. <laughs> it's so ghostly. Uh but it maybe it's not like it's not happening smoothly for you and you haven't learned it at that level. So continue to practice it. Or maybe if it's a skill that you are really good at, just practice it every now and again, the kind of, you know, in wrestling, they call it ring rust, where if you haven't wrestled for a long time and you go back into the ring, like you're a little bit rusty and it's a little bit mechanical and you have to relearn how to do something. So there's an actual term for that. It's called ring rust. Sounds gross. Yeah, it's so, yeah, it's like, oh, there's so many, wrestling's got a whole thing. So, but you should practice as much as possible, even the stuff that you're good at. And maybe include constraints that would prevent errors like, if you're trying to hold an instrument, maybe you tape your hands or tape your fingers in a correct shape while you're doing this. I, 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 there's a lot of different ways to kind of like build in different stop gaps and different ways to prevent errors. When I used to, <laughs> it's funny that that came up because when I used to throw a baseball, I used to throw a sidearm and you're supposed to throw up over your head. You're not supposed to throw from the side. And so what my dad had me do was stand in front of a tree where right in front of my, in front of my face, there was a tree. And, and if I threw sidearm, my hand would hit the tree. So it would hurt, but if I like, which I mean, you know, I actively avoided that, but if I threw overhand, I would never hit the tree. And so that's actually how he taught me how to, to shape up how I was throwing a baseball. So I was practicing and I would contact some kind of non reward or a punishment for an error, but I would learn it the appropriate. And now that's, that's a more aggressive way. I don't recommend that do anybody doing that. This was also in like the early nineties, but that's how I learned how to throw a baseball correctly. When it was okay to have kids hit their arms on trees. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's back, that was a social norm back in 1991, I guess. Is ring rust like ringworm? I hope not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've talked about the, the method of teaching, the sort of tried and true things that we know, the key ingredients for practicing and learning. And the last section here is, I think maybe a little shorter, but it is still important. And this is how much and how often should you practice? And the general recommendation here is more about how you practice than how much and how often. Again, practicing correctly and with feedback and all that sort of stuff, being able to measure your progress. However, there are some considerations around practice frequency that can inform good practice. Yeah. And so maybe one thing you might want to do is treat your new skill as a job in the sense that you have dedicated time for it on a regular basis, most days of the week. And kind of to Abraham's point, you still want this time that you've dedicated to it to be quality and not quantity. Like it's not about 
how much you're doing, but it is how well you're doing it. And making sure that you have the time to do it well is really critical for learning the skill. If you say that you're going to, let's say, pick up running as a habit, you're going to train. And then you say at 6 p.m. every day, I'm going to go for a run for whatever my criteria is for that day. And you stick to that and you treat it like an obligation. And obviously, you'll probably want to take some time off here and there. But sticking to that makes it turn into a much more, it's much more likely that you're going to actually be able to fulfill on that skill and show improvement versus uh, I'll get to it when I have time for it sort of thing. Dedicate the time and practice to it. And if you set a specific time and a specific duration for that practice, then you're much more likely to do it. And then if you go into that practice intentionally knowing this is how I'm going to use this time, then it won't just be this sort of, I don't know, waste of time that you aren't getting anything accomplished. So yes, absolutely. Another one, and related to what you were just saying, is to practice more days per week than not, which is to say there are seven days in a week, practice at least four of them. The more you practice, the faster you will acquire the skill, but there is a point at which you'll reach burnout. Yeah, and burnout's not fun. So like you may, as you're learning a skill, what ends up happening is you're practicing it so much that you're no longer contacting the reward for it. And so you get to a point where there's not even little rewards in learning the skill and you just kind of get done with it because essentially burnout is just you're no longer contacting reward for the skill that you're engaging in, right? It's like diminishing returns. Yeah. And so research has actually shown that practicing an instrument more than four hours per day does not yield any significant gains in the skill. So four hours is about good. And that's probably your threshold. And maybe for you, that's even too much, right? So when I used to practice, I used to practice about two hours a day. And that was enough for me at the time. Because if I practiced more than that, I was I would get sick of it and I would just start resenting the instrument. And honestly, it's really about setting up the amount that you're going to be successful at. Like set your goal at a place that you are 100% sure that you can accomplish that goal. Because if you know that you will not practice more than 15 minutes, setting yourself a goal of two hours means that you're just never going to do it because you're going to come into that and you're like, Ugh, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want to do this for two hours. I'm just not going to do it at all. And that sets people up to quickly turn away from trying to acquire that skill. There is other research that suggests taking frequent breaks which is important. So the breaks should not be as long or longer than like your entire, if you're like, I have two hours of practice, I'm going to take an hour and 50 minute break. Then you're you're doing 10 minutes of practice, but just take little breaks here and there so that you aren't again, burning out on it. Also too, when you're talking about length of time practicing, there are some studies that suggest 20 to 30 minutes for younger learners is probably appropriate. Whereas 45 to 60 minutes of practice for older learners and then taking a break is more appropriate. So there's a lot of factors that probably go into that. We should probably spend some time looking at that at some point in time where it's maybe just attention span or just motivation and and kind of the fleeting nature of motivation. So when you start looking at all that, 20 to 30 minutes for younger learners, 45 to 60 minutes for older learners, and then building a break into all your routines. Yeah. So about how long should you work without a break? 20 to 30 minutes or 45 to 60 minutes. But generally for most people, Take a break at the end of an hour or don't push yourself more than an hour, I would say, unless it's something you absolutely have to. Like if it's a safety thing, then be safe. But generally with practice, don't work at something for more than an hour without taking a break. And then I think one of the the big recommendations that often I think gets missed is that doing something is better than doing nothing. If you can only do five minutes, do five minutes rather than skip practice altogether. Right. Do anything to keep that habit and that skill going. And try and strive for improvement. Like you could sort of thin yourself back to doing next to nothing, but do something, strive for improvement. Otherwise, that skill is never going to happen. And as you're starting to look at that, like that, the idea of something is better than nothing. One thing that does help with that is this idea of scheduling check-ins or setting benchmark check-ins so that you know, you know, where are you supposed to be at these check-in times? If I say, okay, I'm going to learn how to run a marathon and I'm going to do a check-in in the next three months to see if I've met any sort of goal. Like maybe I have to learn how to run a mile successfully without dropping dead, you know? If that's my benchmark, then I need to have a timeline for when I'm going to check in. Like, am I meeting this benchmark? And if not, what am I going to do to change that? Am I practicing enough? Am I burning out? Am I missing some key component to this skill that I'm trying to learn? Well, and and a related version of that is a harder version of that skill. So you might be working on the components and as part of that benchmark, you check, okay, how am I doing on the whole thing? Like I've been playing scales on guitar for months now. Am I any better at coming up with a guitar solo or picking up a new song. And so those are ways to also benchmark your progress. You're absolutely right. Is like doing this on a timeline and then having some way of measuring how are you doing on the higher level, more complex version of those skills. 
And I saw this one recommendation that I thought was kind of interesting, which was practice until fear becomes boredom. Fear turns to boredom. And the idea here is essentially that when you're practicing, when you're learning a new skill, there is some apprehension. There's often some second guessing yourself. Like, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to be able to get this. I don't know if I have what it takes to be good at this. When that turns into, all right, I got it. I got it. I got it. I don't need to do this anymore. Then you've reached the point at which you don't need to practice anymore. Yeah. That's a way of thinking about it. Again, I think having those, those sort of benchmark check-ins and ways of monitoring your progress are really important, but like a way of thinking about this too is when that fear turns to boredom. Yeah. I also thought that that would be like the worst Jedi mantra ever, like practice until fear, fear turns to boredom. Yeah. Just like the laziest Jedi. It's like, I'm just a, like, what, 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 how, how are you tied to the force? Uh, whatever. It's fine. Yeah, instead of fear turns to hate. Yeah. Fear oh. turns to boredom. And then they're yeah. just the laziest Sith Lord on the planet. Yeah. Like, it's eh, too easy. <laughs> yeah, force lightning was too easy. I'm done. All right. Do you have anything else on how to practice or learn to do anything? No, I think, I mean, that's kind of the gist of it, right? Like, I mean, it is a process. I think that's probably a, a big takeaway for me is that it, it does take time. It does take practice, but it is a process. And it is like a, like you slowly acquire those skills towards what you're looking to get to. And for anybody who's ever taken on a big project where it's not necessarily about building a skill, but about building something like accomplishing something, if you've ever worked on a huge Lego structure or if you've ever done a house project, doing little bits at a time consistently adds up. And that's the same thing for these skills is you may not even notice that you're improving for a while. And those improvements might be small and hard to detect, but they're there and eventually they're going to be really, really huge. It'll be profoundly different. I actually just, I happened to stumble across this. There's all these videos on YouTube of people learning guitar or bass or other instruments, and they show just a few seconds clip of them practicing every day or not every day, but it's like once a month over the course of a few years. And so it's weird to watch people age that quickly for one, but it's kind of <laughs> cool because you see how they start out and how awkward they are. And then just like 20 seconds later in the video, they're already noticeably much, much more proficient at what they're doing. And to them, you know, that was months of just deliberate practice every day for 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour. But when you do that check-in, you go in to see, all right, it's been a few months. Now, how are things looking? It is way better than it was before. And that's just that small, deliberate, consistent practice. It makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I think there's two examples that come to mind whenever I think about like that deliberate practice to getting to that terminal goal. And it's like both of us play instruments, but both of us also completed PhDs. And so just writing your dissertation is this large, like this large, huge goal that it seems overwhelming at first, but a little bit of writing every single day and then shaping that language up and, and really getting to that point where it's like it ends up being like a text. It ends up being a book in itself, like when you complete it. So, I mean, those two things, like learning an instrument, writing a dissertation, like they are these smaller steps to this larger goal that that require time and reward and practice and, and dedication to get to. Perfect. That kind of that makes me think of a different recommendation that I would love to give at some point. I'm going to write down, but it is very related to this episode. But yes, you're absolutely right that especially some of these are skills that like you're not necessarily learning a totally new skill, but you're putting a skill that you have to work and maybe a different way. And writing is what I was thinking of. And that daily practice is critical to doing a lot of writing. Even if it's like, if you wanted to write a novel, then sit down and write for 20 minutes every single day. And you're probably going to throw away 90% of that, but at the end of it, you will have a novel. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you just sit down and you do it. You just keep doing it until you've got your finished product. And then you just keep doing it some more. And like, that's the reason Stephen King cranks out a thousand books and George R.R. R. Martin cranks out zero. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the difference between those two. <laughs> I mean, George R.R. R. Martin doesn't have as many ending problems, I don't think, though, right? I mean, it's hard to say since he hasn't finished his series. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> he might. Yeah, he might. Anyway, are we ready for take home points? Yeah, let's do it. Great. Okay. So my first take home point is that learning is doing. Just being talked at about something is not doing. And so you might extrapolate a little bit from that, but the most of what you're going to learn is by doing. So get out there and practice. One of the take-home points I would 
bring up too would be identifying small component steps. So if I'm going to plan to cook a six course meal, what do I need to learn within that? What skills, what, what do I need to do to start to get to that next place? What are those prerequisite skills? What am I required to know before I can get to where I want to go? And if I may add to that a little bit, I think that learning those component steps and not just knowing how to do them, but doing them fluently and effortlessly. That's one of the key points here too, is, is just that those component skills, like if you struggle through the component, but you're like, oh, I did that. Now I can move on to the harder thing. Nope. Go back and do that component until it is easy peasy. Right. Until you're bored. Until you're bored. Exactly right. And then the final one for me for a take-home point is going back to this behavior skills training model, the tell, show, do, or the describe, demonstrate, practice, and praise, and then feedback, or I guess that's the praise part of it. But yeah, so it's those steps of have it described, have it modeled, practice it yourself, get feedback on your practice, or if you're teaching someone, just those steps for the person who's learning. I love it. Cool. You have any other take-home points? Nope. I think that's a good place to end it. Okay, let's move on to some recommendations. Let's do it. Recommendations. So my recommendation this week is a fiction book, and it is by, I've never read anything by this author. His name is Haruki Murakami, and well known for being kind of this whimsical, strange fiction writer. And I just started reading his book, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. Have you ever read that? I have not heard of this at all. It's wild. So I posted something up about it on something not too long ago, and everybody was like, it's like reading a fever dream. And it's absolutely, (laughs) this is exactly what it's like. So it's about this guy in Japan, and he kind of like starts going through all these life events. Like it kind of starts off kind of slow. Then he gets a strange call from this woman, and all these like weird psychic things start happening, and all these weird things in the neighborhood. And just like, just it's, it's all his interactions, and just it gets really bizarre really quickly but you just can't help but like start trying to put stuff together because it's like like something will happen you're like okay how's this going to play in later because just it's just it's really great i haven't finished it yet i'm probably about 200 pages from finishing it's about 600 page book but definitely worth the effort and the time to put into it i am like i can't wait to read the rest of his work nice my recommendation, very unrelated, is the Association on American Indian Affairs, which I would rename Native American Affairs because that makes a lot more sense, given that this is actually focusing on Native American tribes. This is a nonprofit organization, and the whole point is that it protects the sovereignty, the culture, and education of youth of Native Americans. And it was largely built out of reaction to how the some of the federal policies in place in the early in the 1800s, 1900s, and all of that have been somewhat detrimental to the Native American population. And so just, you know, a cool charity and organization to check out if you're interested in supporting a local charity that's one to, to consider. I like it. There's definitely a huge need with that population, for sure. So anyway, respect the indigenous people of this country. And that's, that's my other recommendation, I guess, part two. I like it. I like it. <laughs> All right, perfect. Well, if you would like to tell us about a book that you're reading or a charity that you like, please let us know. If you are learning a new skill and you have any feedback, recommendations, thoughts, or stories that you would like to share, we would love to hear those and potentially share them on the show. So please reach out to us. Let us know about any crazy thing that you are picking up or putting down or whatever is going on in your life of developing (laughs) new habits. If you'd like to learn more about other episodes, you can visit our website at www.wwdpodcast.com. Reach out to us on social media, email us, let us know how you are doing and all those things. And if you'd like to support the show, you can join us on Patreon or of course, leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I think that's all I have. You have anything else? Nope, I think that's it. All right, thank you for listening. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. 
You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.